Hello and welcome to episode 1188 of Effectively Wild, right? Fangraphs yes. Baseball Podcast <laughs> brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello. Hello. Today we are doing another team preview episode. We will be joined by Nick Picoro to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks and also Kyle Loebner to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. Before we get to those previews, we will talk about Jason Hayward's million to one odds. There was a there was a tweet. Also, some emails that went circulating. There was a tweet. Uh, one I found publicly was from Jeff Fletcher uh, Jeff, at Jeff Fletcher OCR. Quote, this morning, I got an email with a bunch of MLB prop bets you can make. Apparently, you can bet on whether Jason Hayward opts out of his contract. The odds are one million to one. So <laughs> couldn't Jason Hayward just put $200 on that and opt out? I saw that tweet after we received an email from J.P. Hornstra. And uh, J.P. Hornstra received the same email that Jeff Fletcher did advertising these one million to one odds now looking at this it reminded me of your can't lose bet of 2017 <laughs> that you wrote about where right. brad mills was supposed to hit 24 and uh, <laughs> over under right brad mills 24 and a yeah. half home runs and you placed a hundred dollar bet because brad mills hadn't even been in the major leagues and is a pitcher this right. was of course supposed to be brad miller <laughs> incidentally yeah. brad miller only hit nine home runs but yeah <laughs> did you what happened there that bet was very quickly voided i believe like voided imme- like immediately after i wrote the article i think come on <laughs> so that's not even uh, would you would you have bet if it said well i guess you wouldn't have bet if it said brad miller because that's just a regular bet but they should have you should have won your 86 dollars. i think so yeah. yeah there's a brad mills who's a pitcher and a brad mills who's a coach and neither of them <laughs> is going to hit 24 home runs so i felt pretty good about that bet but uh they quickly realized the error of their ways so regarding this uh this jason hayward thing million to one odds we talked about hayward and opting out just the other day and to put it simply a million to one is a bet i would take <laughs> Jason Hayward opting out uh, because all he would need to do is have one of his really great seasons, which he's already had three or four times. He would only be going into his age 29 season, etc. I was tempted to write about this because it it was just so silly, but I couldn't Mm -hmm. find any evidence of it online aside from the email we were sent. Then both you and J.P. Hornstra were able to find a website that said that the odds were actually 10,000 to one, which is far less interesting, but still silly, still a very silly number to attach (laughs) to the odds of Jason Hayward having a great season. But J.P. wrote into this company, what is it, Sports Betting Dime? And this is where it gets even more confusing. I don't know if I'm at liberty to read this email aloud on a podcast, but I'm doing it. And I don't know if we have a legal team, but I guess if we don't, (laughs) hopefully we won't need one. I won't read the whole thing because it's not important. But JP asked about this, these odds because he wanted to know what this means. And the response was, Hi, JP. Thanks for the message. Sports Betting Dime is a sports betting information website and doesn't take bets. We put our own (laughs) odds on the site for comparison purposes and to generate discussion. The Hayward prop bet isn't available elsewhere online from what we've seen. It's something specific that our odds guys dreamed up. What? (laughs) I'm really, really confused by this business model. (laughs) It's just... <laughs> they come up with odds. They don't actually offer the odds, and the odds are not available anywhere. <laughs> but they they tell you about them. <laughs> so it's just like an unpopular Twitter account of a business is essentially like probably at MLB Prop Bets underscore underscore would have these 
bets or something that, that would be on them, and it would be followed by 17 people, and six of them would be real. But what I I don't even know what further there is to say. But why send out this email? What are you trying to? There's no mu- <laughs> They got us talking about it, but I, I don't guess, even know but- how they benefit from us talking about it because there's. No way to conduct business with them as far as I know. So and I already forgot the name of the company in the first place. So this <laughs> is just a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, there's no I'm need just, to know. I, yeah. I, I was disappointed because I said just kind of off the cuff on our podcast yesterday, I thought maybe there was like a 5% chance that Hayward opts out, something like that. So if I thought that was actually the case after thinking about it more, million to one odds would have been really great if we could have gotten them. But we could imagine because imagine. We could bet $10 (laughs) and we would have the most exciting baseball season we've ever experienced. Yeah, I'd be rooting for Jason Hayward harder than I would be writing exclusively about Jason Hayward, (laughs) sending private messages, working harder than I've ever worked to try to make Jason Hayward good. Yeah, but I, alas, I, I've only ever placed one sports bet in my life, and it was the Brad Mills and Brad <laughs> Miller bet. So this was going to be my second one. I'm disappointed. I was so excited, even at ten thousand to one. I thought, what's a hundred dollars? I could stomach losing a hundred dollars because Jason Hayward probably won't be very good. But oh my god, what an exciting at least like couple months it would be. Because you know, I haven't read about Jason Hayward this off season, but I'm sure he's working on a new swing or something like that. And mm-hmm. You know, even last season, he wasn't a terrible hitter. He was just not very good. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the difference between Jason Hayward and Lorenzo Cain as a hitter, not great. This is really not that much of a difference. And Lorenzo Cain got five years and 80 million. We don't have to keep going over this. I'm just really disappointed and confused and resentful of, I guess it wasn't Bovada. So because it's usually Bovada who sends out these emails. So whatever this other company was, if it's even a company or maybe it's just a guy with a website that... (laughs) conducts no business i don't know but i guess it did get us talking so congratulations website person whose name we've already forgotten yeah well let's talk about mike moustakis who just i think maybe has the most shocking contract terms that i've ever seen maybe in retrospect it shouldn't be shocking and we'll talk about that but when I saw what he signed for, which is one year and six and a half million to return to the Royals, I really kind of did a double take. And I, we knew that his market was not shaping up anywhere near where he wanted it to and where Scott Boris expected it to. But even so, I expected that he would end up signing for something respectable, you know, for, I don't know, 20-something, 30-something, 40-something, instead of the 80 or 90-something he was forecasted for by everyone. Instead, one year, 6.5 million, which is like a third, a little more than a third of what he would have gotten had he just accepted the qualifying offer at the beginning of the offseason. That is really just... I, it kind of blew me away. For my own satisfaction, I would like you now to recount the status of our free oh. agent prediction game. Over? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I'll I'll look up the figures right now. I didn't even want to look because yeah. you took Moustakis. Yeah, in the history of the offseason contract drafts, there has never been <laughs> anyone who got so much money in one deal because you went with Moustakis. So you took the under on... What was it? Eighty-five million was what yes, MLB trade rumors. Yeah, so <laughs> you picked up almost a cool eighty million on this <laughs> one deal, and we 
had been close to tied, and now you're just blowing me away. And you still got Jake Arietta on your board and Lance Lynn, right? So, <laughs> good lord, it's uh, over. It's a massacre. I, am, I should probably be representing some players. <laughs> uh, it is. It is interesting when you uh, when you look at this. I think that it's really easy with uh, Scott Boris clients in particular to figure. Well, they're going to hold out, but eventually they'll find their money because Boris has kind of earned that benefit of the doubt. But no, it didn't happen here. And no. and I think even though the cases are unrelated, Jake Arrieta could end up getting a pretty small deal himself. I, don't, I know Boris has put all this bluster out there about how Arietta compares well to like Max Scherzer and David Price, which would have been true two years ago, but <laughs> then two years happened. So I don't know exactly where those negotiations stand right now. But, you know, this is jarring. And Carlos Gonzalez, isn't he a Boris guy as well? I don't remember, but John Heyman's been writing about him, so probably. And he's <laughs> signing a one-year deal with Colorado to mm. be like a part-time player. And I'm pretty sure yeah. that not too long ago, he turned down a, a five-year contract extension offer, right, from the Rockies. But anyway, this is this is about Moustakis. Mm. And, uh, Speaking of Arietta, by the way, I was wrong. He's actually on my board. I drafted Arietta, so I took the under on him. Oh, wait. <laughs> I took the over on him. <laughs> 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 okay, and, never uh, mind. It's still Ariad <laughs> is listed at what's what's the MLB trade rumors prediction? A hundred. <laughs> He's gonna end up with like nine or something, and <laughs> then you'll beat me by hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> well, as the soon to be anointed king of the podcast, I will continue to leave production to uh to you. I still got the under on Jonathan Lucroy. At 24 million, that's going to help me. He is now signed with the A's for one year, although we don't know what the terms are yet. Reportedly turned down three and 21, though, from the Rockies earlier this winter. All right. If Jonathan anyway. Lucroy pays his next employer $70 million, <laughs> then he might get a shot back yeah. in this game. So, Mike Misakis, what happened here? So, when we were talking about Justin Upton comments to Pedro Mora not too long ago, and uh, Upton was talking about his own experience in free agency, and he said that. Uh, you know, he'd he'd been told that when you are a premium free agent, you'll be flattered and courted and teams will just be excited to sign you. And I think that's still true for for certain guys. But Upton also talked about and we talked about how free agency could be turning into something similar to arbitration, where now teams are focusing on sort of the things you can't do to try to keep your price down. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know how true, I've never been on the inside of this process, but when I have researched Mike Moustakis, I keep coming back to the idea that there is a lot here to not really like mm -hmm. a whole lot. It doesn't change the fact that he's still been a, a good player and above average hitter for two and a half seasons or whatever since he yeah since he changed I mean, but kind of Hosmer-esque it really in that you look at his fan graphs wars at least and his offense is certainly more consistent but if you factor in everything else he's gone from basically replacement level to pretty good in you know alternating in the last four years one of those years was an injury year obviously but He's also been someone who's kind of been up and down and undependable. Yeah, and with Hosmer, at least you can you can look at him and figure he he makes better batted ball quality. And even though Mustakis is a third baseman and Hosmer is a first baseman, Hosmer is considerably faster. He's more athletic of the two players, and I think you can look at Hosmer and you can foresee greater longevity. And of course, Hosmer's one year younger, but with Mustakis, he's learned to hit for power, and that's great. He set some kind of record. I forgot what the record was. Was it the all-time single-season home run record? for the Royals every team probably just broke that record so it's not that important but <laughs> yeah well for the Royals 
that lasted forever, right? It was the, yeah. the Steve Balboni record. So, yeah. And he only hit 38. I mean, that's a lot of home <laughs> runs, but that's not. Well, anyway, you look at him and I think one of the things that really hurts here and that hasn't been talked about a whole lot is that in 2016, Mike Moustakis had ACL surgery. He collided with Alex Gordon and he uh, he had an operation and he came back. And last season, Mike Moustakis was slower than he'd ever been. He was a really a I don't want to say a dreadful base runner, but he was slow and very conservative. So while he didn't make a lot of base running outs, he just didn't do anything. He was just a station-to-station guy. And his defensive numbers were the worst that they've been in his career as a third baseman. And so you look at him, he's not in phenomenal shape. I've never hugged the guy without a shirt on, which was a weird <laughs> thing to say. But, you know, looking at him, he doesn't look as trim as Eric Hosmer. He is slower than Eric Hosmer. He wasn't a very good defensive third baseman last season. So even though he is still on the the younger side of 30, and even though he was just a good hitter, I think that there would have been a lot of risk in even making him like the medium-term solution for someone at third base because it's very possible that a year from now you're looking at him as a first baseman. He can't really do anything else. And so I I think that there is maybe just an underrepresentation of how much Moustakis's diminished athleticism hurt his stock. And you throw in the fact that pretty much only bad teams were looking for a third baseman by the second half of this offseason. And I'm not going to say that he deserved one year and 6.5 million. He should have done better than that. But <laughs> yeah. Scott Boris probably should have aimed lower. Yeah. And, you know, you went through the whole thing in your post about how just there weren't a lot of teams that were looking for third baseman, the ones that were not really in a position to spend a lot of money on a premium free agent. And some of them just went with some other option. You know, the Angels went with Zach Cozart and moved him over to third, for instance. And also there's the draft pick compensation that's attached to him because he was a qualifying offer guy. And, you know, I I know that a lot of people look at this and think, well, $6.5 million. I mean, sure, my team couldn't have signed him for $80 million, but couldn't they have given him $8 million or something? But with any other team but the Royals, it would have brought those qualifying offer costs and the draft pick and the pool money and all of that. So because this was the Royals, the Royals were able to bring him back without any of that cost. So it would have taken some other team significantly more than this to sign him, you know, just at least in terms of the total penalty. But still, gosh, I mean, you look at it and it's a fairly rare example of Scott Boris seemingly just completely miscalculating a market. On the one hand, Moustakis must be thinking, and it's easy to think he should have taken that qualifying offer. He'd be a much wealthier man in 2018 if he had. On the other hand, there's just, I don't think even, you know, no one was saying back in October, November, Mike Moustakis should take the qualifying offer. I don't think even, I mean, not knowing what the market was going to turn out to be like, there was just no way to forecast that he wouldn't be able to make at least that much. So I don't know what form exactly Boris's failure took. Like, obviously, he came out guns blazing and was demanding all the money in the world. But, you know, I don't know if that scared teams away. You'd think that eventually when it became clear that they weren't going to get that money, if there were offers out there for 20 million, 30 million, whatever it is, they would have ended up taking one of those unless they felt like, you know, have a one-year deal, show that maybe his speed and defense can bounce back a bit. He'll be only 30 next offseason and we'll try this again. 
yeah, it's worth considering Zach Cozart had ACL surgery and he had other things torn as well in 2015. He's come back. He's hit. He's played good defense. So, you know, these things are recoverable. But Moustakis has just become something so slow. Last season, he also became one of the most aggressive hitters in baseball, which is just a weird change that yeah. didn't make him worse, didn't make him better. It just kind of happened. But you you look at it and, yeah, it, the the compensation rules have changed in that teams aren't in position to lose like a first round pick anymore when they sign a qualifying offer guy. But still, you're looking at like people would talk about the Yankees as an option. And of course, they traded for Brandon Drury and they have Miguel Andahar, who they love at third base. So it's not like there was that much of an opening to begin with. But the Yankees would have had to give up their second and fifth highest draft picks in the next draft. And they would have had their international spending pool reduced by a million dollars. So that's pretty significant for the Yankees, especially when you're talking about a non-elite player. The Tigers are going to face a similar constraint. And, you know, the Tigers are terrible. They have an opening at third base. But I don't know what Mike Mosakis would really do for them. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you look at it now, and it's like the Musakis was pegged to go to the Braves, if not the Angels or the White Sox, and the Braves don't have a very good third baseman now. But they would have had the same issues with the qualifying offer. They would have paid a different compensation price because they didn't exceed the luxury tax last season. But in any case, it's I think that the Royals acted here. In theory, the Royals lose the pick they would have gotten had Mus. Moustakis signed somewhere else, mm. but I'm going to guess that the Royals figured Moustakis might not sign until after the draft, so maybe there was no compensation to be lost anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, should have taken the qualifying offer in hindsight, but no one knew that back then, and I guess for Moustakis' sake, if he has a better athletic and better defensive 2018, then he'll have a chance next offseason. I know Manny Machado and Josh Donaldson are going to be out there, but for every third baseman who is available, that means there is another third base opening. So mm-hmm. he hasn't lost his opportunity, but this is this is humbling for him and his agent. Yeah, really low BABIP guy also. <laughs> 265 career, which is, you know, given how long his career is, that's a, a very low number. That's obviously the shift has played a part in that, and he's tried to reinvent himself and go the other way, sometimes with some success. But if he is slowing down even more, then that's going to be tough because he's going to be very dependent on his power, especially because this new version of him doesn't really walk either. So mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to imagine that production evaporating pretty quickly. So maybe that is what scared teams off. But man, just terrible timing for him, terrible circumstances. You know, I guess there's probably only so much sympathy that maybe our listeners have for someone who is making many, many more times money than they are, even with this very disappointing contract. But that is, uh, it's tough because as you laid out in your piece, this is when you're supposed to get your reward as a Major League Baseball player for this strange upside down economic system where you are worth much more than you're paid for years and then in theory, at least, you will be paid what you're worth or maybe more than you're worth from then on. And that is just not happening here. So yep. rough. There's also the fact that not only did they pass up the qualifying offer and then have the Royals say, hey, remember when we were willing to pay you $17.4 million? Yeah, now it's $6.5 million. But they may have received bigger offers earlier in the offseason that they turned down, and we may never know about some of those offers. There was a report by Sam Mellinger in the KC Star citing two league sources that Moustakis and Boris turned down a three-year offer from the Angels worth around $45 million early in the offseason. 
So I guess before the Zach Cozart deal. So if that's true, then you have to imagine that Moustakis might not be pleased with his representation this winter. Moustakis, I believe, is, at least in terms of guaranteed money, he's taking a pay cut from his final year of arbitration, despite being an above-average player. Oof, that is tough. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Carlos Gonzalez, we don't have as much to say about him, I'm sure, but seems like that's going to be a one-year deal with the Rockies. Looks like $8 million guaranteed, which, hey, better than Mike Moustakis, but... He's also kind of a perplexing case. Obviously, he's been a star in the past, has fallen on harder times recently, but has a a very confusing split for 2017 where he had a 51 WRC plus in the first half, which is you know, Jeff Mathis-esque, as we will discuss soon, (laughs) and then 125 in the second half. And in his last like 200 plate appearances or so, had great numbers, but also an extremely high BABIP. So maybe he was getting a little lucky, but he also, I think, was hitting the ball harder and seemed to have tinkered with his mechanics and gotten the feel for his swing back. So he's sort of a tough guy to evaluate right now. I don't know if he's more like the second half guy or the first half guy. So that is probably a a factor that (laughs) held him back, too. I will read to you Carlos Gonzalez's monthly WRC Plus numbers last season. Okay, So played six months. Uh, This is going, of course, in chronological order, oldest to newest. 45, 67, 41, 49, 81, 204. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So it's not even about a whole half of the season. It's one month. One month where Carlos Gonzalez was unbelievable. 12 doubles, 6 homers, 15 walks, 24 strikeouts. I uh, have absolutely no explanation. But yeah, yeah, he's going to be a part-time player, I guess, with Colorado. So... Whoops. But, yeah. he, you know, at least at least for Gonzalez, he already signed an $80 million contract earlier in his career. So he's, yes. he's made one splash. Right. He's, this is a very different case from Moustakis. Yeah. Travis Sachik wrote about him in January in a post entitled Don't Completely Forget About Carlos Gonzalez. And he had the, the stat cast numbers, the swing rate, the home runs per fly ball, all of that stuff. And showed sort of the, the rolling averages over time, which all dipped and then bounced back up. And so Travis wrote that from August 7th to the close of the season, Gonzalez resembled a more vintage version of himself. And he's always been a, a guy with kind of a weird, complicated mechanical swing and so there was a a leg kick issue and that was off and anyway there was a mechanical explanation for why his numbers seem to rebound so anyway if you're looking for someone who is maybe not as bad as his 2017 full season numbers suggest he'd be a, a pretty good pick but unlikely that he's going to bounce all the way back to stardom yep I also just want to give a quick mention to the article that I have up now at The Ringer. I think it'd probably be of interest to our listeners. It's about some of the more recent defensive strategies that teams are using, the Phillies strategy that we talked about of corner outfielder swapping and some of the more extreme outfield shifts, but also how those connect to the origins of those strategies and the past and I did some digging here, and I really learned a lot while working on this piece, and I kind of went back to the origins of all of these strategies, four-man outfield and five-man infield and the rest, and they all 
go back much longer than you'd think. Like we tend to think of these things, and I've been as guilty of this as anyone, but we tend to think of these things as cutting edge and sabermetric and data-driven, and they are certainly, and they've been embraced more than before, but there have always been outlier teams, outlier managers who were willing to try these things. And I wrote about Bertie Tebbets, who was a manager in the 50s and 60s, who was just always pushing the envelope on these things. He pioneered the four-man outfield in 1954. And I actually was able to talk to the first ever I don't know how to say it. The first ever fourth man in an outfield, Nino Escalera, who came into a game against Stan Musial in 1954 and was officially the shortstop, but was playing deep right center field. He is now 88. He's, you know, kind of a historical figure. He integrated that franchise, actually, but he also had a first, which was that he was the first four-man outfield, and he remembered it pretty well and talked to me about it. And all these things go back to, like, the 50s or, in some cases, longer. There was even a five-man infield, and I don't mean just the walk-off situation five-man infield where, like, a, a sack fly costs you the game anyway, so you just bring everyone in. I mean, a legitimate one, the kind that Sam and I wrote about in the book. There was an Artie Wilson shift, that's what it was called. In April of 1951, Dodgers manager Chuck Dressen tried this against Artie Wilson, who was on the Giants and was a former Negro leaguer and was just sort of a a slap-hitting speedster and never pulled the ball. And so they put this five-man infield shift on him removed one of the outfielders and uh, it worked he sort of he just bounced back to the pitcher and Artie Wilson's career lasted 16 more games <laughs> which is maybe not surprising in which he posted a 396 OPS but this was something even that Dressen had picked up in a Pacific Coast League game earlier than that and then Branch Rickey talked about it and sort of tried it with the Pirates so all this stuff is not really new and you know People have been defended against by four-man outfields. Mark McGuire, Harmon Kilbrew, Ernie Banks, Willie Mays, just a long list of sluggers, and it seems to like disappear every decade or two and then reappear, and everyone greets it as this groundbreaking thing that, wow, no one's ever done this before, but really there's been a lot of baseball, and most of these things have happened somewhere or someone. So it was really interesting for me to dig into this, so I'll link to it. Well, you have now spoiled much of the article that I was in the middle of when we started recording this. So oh, no. I guess that saves me some time. <laughs> All right. Well, I had just gotten to the birdie Tebbets part. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd mention Noah Syndergaard pitched again and he threw really hard and he struck out seven consecutive nationals. And then he said he didn't have his best stuff. Or I guess Kevin Plowecki said he didn't have his best stuff. And Noah Syndergaard said that he's not in midseason form, even though he was throwing 101 or topped out at 101 and was throwing his 90 plus mile per hour slider and his mid 80s curve and all of that. And I just I don't know what to think about Noah Syndergaard pitching updates because they just they make me almost sick to my stomach because like I I love reading about Noah Syndergaard's dominance and watching Noah Syndergaard's dominance but the more dominant he is the more I feel like there's just an expiration date on what he's doing which is I think what we've all felt about Noah Syndergaard going back a couple of years now and proved to be the case for most of last season but 
It's just if you look at the track record of pitchers who not even throw as hard as he does because almost no one has, but just the guys who've thrown the hardest in the pitch tracking era, there is just a, a whole lot of Tommy John and various other surgeries and no one has been able to do what he does for any consistent period of time. And I just wish that he could not throw this hard in spring training. It just <laughs> it doesn't count. Just I know it's good to establish that you're healthy again and earn that opening day start and feel good about yourself and all of that, but just save the ammunition. Please save the elbow. Just throw ninety six instead. I know it's not necessarily easy for a pitcher who is accustomed to throwing max effort all the time not to do that, but Man, these innings do not matter. I don't know if he knows how to do that. No. I don't know how easy it is. And because Syndergaard missed so much time last season, I think it's everyone knows Noah Syndergaard is very good. But I think that people have maybe forgotten that he looked like he very easily could have been the best pitcher in baseball a couple yeah. years ago when he was healthy. And I wrote an article for ESPN about like the best players the next five years and whatever. It's a standard ESPN list article, but the only I only included one pitcher because you know just there's just risk, and the pitcher I chose to include was Syndergaard because he's just one of he's the young and he's pitchers, amazing. Yeah. You know, Clayton yeah. Kershaw's got the the established back trouble and he's getting older, and Corey Kluber isn't young, and Chris Sale isn't young, and uh, most of the really great established pitchers are no longer young, and I just wouldn't feel comfortable thinking about them for for five years. But with Syndergaard, of course, he could blow out his arm at any moment. But, you know, his elbow has remained intact. That wasn't the problem last season. And he's just unbelievable. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at Araldus Chapman, I know he's he's been a reliever, but he's put in, what, eight, nine years, even just in affiliated ball without a major injury. And he's been throwing harder than anyone on record. And he was yeah. probably throwing this hard in Cuba. As far as I know, he's never ever had a major arm problem of course he's got the dead arm phases he goes through and and whatnot but there are freaks there are the people whose bodies are strong enough and it's like with with Shohei Otani you want to believe that he can be something that by all rights shouldn't exist or shouldn't be possible and that's where I am with Syndergaard objectively like you I get concerned because it doesn't make sense and he should blow up at any moment but you know if he is one of those freaks internally with the, I don't know, what is it, tensile strength or whatever it is that he has in his ligaments such that they don't tear, mm-hmm. he could be something that baseball, well, he already is something baseball hasn't seen. And he could be that yeah. for a decade and a half. I hope he is, but I, I don't know. He's obviously in a different role than Chapman is. He throws more pitches. Maybe there's just more strain on him. And I. it's just hard to imagine that this kind of dominance can keep up. And it just seems like he, I don't know whether it's an ego thing or whether it's just sort of how he's wired or what, but he always seems to be throwing as hard as he possibly can. He threw super hard and was incredible in 2016 and then tried to bulk up and throw even harder last off season, it seemed. And I just, I wonder whether he's going to be one of those guys who, does go through an injury and then comes back a little older, a little wiser and says, you know, and you read all the articles, well, I realized that I didn't need to throw 100% all the time. I could take a little off or because he's so good that if he could figure out how to take a little off, he would still be incredibly good. And I just wonder because it, it seems like 
the greater injury risk. I'm trying to remember some research that I guess we both saw at Sabre Seminar, but I think that it's like the, the closer you throw to your own max speed is the greater risk factor. Like there are some guys who just, you know, physically they throw harder than other guys and maybe that's not necessarily more risky, but if you kind of throw closer to the top of your range, then that is risky. And it seems like he's always throwing at the top of his range. And I just wonder whether he could transition into more of a Verlander type model where he just holds a little bit back and is still amazing but then just reaches back when he needs the 101 instead of reaching back for 101 on March 12th or whatever it is. And let's think about that possibility because in Noah Syndergaard's second major league season, he was worth 6.4 wins above replacement. In Justin Verlander's, he was worth 3.7. Syndergaard, already better than Verlander was, at least when he was new, if he could figure out that just that sort of, I don't know, switching between gears with his fastball, yeah, then there's nothing nothing left. There's just no hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know, you know, Mets fans are prone to... uh, I don't know, anxieties, you could say, and they're never really certain that things are going to work out. And that's mostly because they have good reason to feel that way. But they're an easy team to underestimate because this year they should have a healthy Noah Syndergaard. And a healthy Noah Syndergaard is unlike pretty much a healthy anyone else in Mm -hmm. baseball. Yep. Anyway, I don't want to be a wet blanket or a doomsayer or a defeatist. I don't want anything to happen to Noah Syndergaard. I want to protect Noah Syndergaard. So I just hope that he figures out how to do that or that the Mets do and that we don't have to be worried every time we see the readings on the radar gun or whatever more advanced technology we use these days. So that's all. And by the way, everyone... Go read Travis Sachik's article that he published on Thursday because it is on a subject that we talked about yesterday, Shohei Otani, and why he is possibly underrated as a hitter. I think that's kind of the camp I'm in. Travis presents some quotes, presents some evidence to that effect. Granted, most of the sources in the article are Angel's sources, so that's what they would say, but they have also seen him up close and have a a decent sense of his potential. So I hope that Travis is right that Otani's supposed lesser half is actually better than we've been thinking. On the other hand, there was a Jeff Passan article published on Friday that argued essentially the opposite, or at least presented a lot of opinions from scouts saying that he's not going to be able to be a hitter, he's not ready, he'd need a full minor league season, it's not going to last. So clearly many evaluators' mileage may vary. There was an article that was published on MLB.com on Thursday, I believe it was. It was Wednesday. It doesn't matter. Shohei Otani faced Clayton Kershaw. Mm. And the headline of the article is uh, Kershaw freezes Otani, talks some smack. Kershaw, there's a video here of Kershaw striking out Otani, looking on a curveball that eh, might have been in the zone. I don't know. There have been a lot of different zones in baseball history. But as far as I can tell, the quote that Kershaw offered was uh, Kershaw uh, was asked if he was excited to face Otani. Quote, I could care less now. He didn't pick us. Good luck to him. Mm-hmm. Is that smack? Is that Clayton Kershaw's version of smack to say <laughs> good luck to a player who's not on his, <laughs> on his team? I guess it depends on the tone. There was that Andy McCullough article about how the Dodgers failed to land Shohei Otani. And it seems like Chris Taylor, Justin Turner, Clayton Kershaw, the players who were called in to be part of that pitch were a little bit bitter about 
not necessarily Otani's attitude. Maybe in, in one of their cases, they sort of denigrated Otani's attitude, but more about his agent because they all seemed to feel that there was never really any realistic possibility that he was going to end up with the Dodgers or any NL team and that he seemed pretty committed to DHing from the start. And so I think they all felt like they wasted their time and made a trip for nothing. So there's probably a little lingering resentment over that on their part. So maybe that qualifies as smack, but it's uh, it's not the smackiest smack I've heard. I don't think smack is allowed to be. I think smack should read as smack, even independent of tone. And I look, I haven't thought about this very much. So it's it's fine. Maybe when you are Clayton Kershaw, then your smack talk is relative because, you know, you could say good luck to him or good luck to him. And, you know, I guess there's a little bit of a difference, but it seemed very polite. Much to do about very little. But it was a very good curveball and probably a good take. Whatever. We don't need to talk about this anymore. One other quick follow-up I wanted to mention. On yesterday's email show, we talked about a hypothetical where Mike Trout can't throw. Would he still be playable? Would he still be valuable? Well, listener Abron reminded us on Twitter that this sort of happened. In 2015, Randall Grichuk played center field for the Cardinals despite not being able to throw. So he fielded a ball and just sort of shovel passed it to Jason Hayward and Wright. And the guy went first to home on what probably should have been a single. And Anthony Rizzo, who hit that single, ended up at third. There is a kind of counterexample that listener Cole points out. This happened with the Cardinals earlier in 2003 when Albert Pujols had elbow pain but had to play left field. He did do that for three games. Couldn't really throw, was just supposed to toss the ball to someone who could. And it seemed to go okay. He was just replaced in the middle of the game by someone who could throw, but the ball didn't actually go to him that much. But that's just sort of a a stopgap solution. Wouldn't work over a full season. And that's driven into right center field. Carpenter has to go way out to get the cut from Gritchick, who flips it to Hayward. Carpenter to second base. Run does score, and Rizzo is in a rundown between second and third. No one is there. Martinez can't get there. He's safe. Everything goes wrong on that play for St. Louis. Let me count the ways. The first is Randall Gritchett underhands it to Jason Hayward. Randall Gritchett, a center fielder who could not throw the ball. His arms sore. Okay, let's take a quick break then, and we'll be right back with Nick Picoro to talk about the Diamondbacks. Hotel in Arizona made us all want to feel like stars. The rental cars with tinted windows leave another number for me. Now it's time that we talk about the up-and-coming, down-and-going, I don't know, kind of treading water, Arizona Diamondbacks. We're joined by the wonderful Nick Picora of AZ Central Sports, the uh, Diamondbacks beat writer there. And Nick, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? Doing very well. Doing better than Zach Granke. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that'll be this. Well, it feels like maybe the last, I don't know, every spring training that I've been writing about baseball, we've wondered about Zach Greinke's velocity around like the first start of the season. And I guess we're doing that again because you had him clocked or maybe somebody near you had him clocked in the 84 to 86 mile per hour range during a game on Thursday. So you uh, you spoke with Zach Greinke after the game. Many people spoke with Zach Greinke after the game. He is not new to addressing questions about his velocity, but uh, what was the response this time? Do you think that there's anything different 
this time as compared to every other single spring that we've seen? <laughs> well, I don't know exactly what it's been in the past. I remember, okay, so his first spring with the Diamondbacks, you know, two years ago, I guess it was, he was sitting or at least touching 93 miles an hour in his first couple of spring outings. Last year, it took him until like his fourth spring outing to even touch 90. So that seemed troubling to me. And now here we are in his third spring outing, and he's topping out at 87 and sitting mostly in the mid-80s. So it almost makes you know my concerns from last spring seem silly. But at the same time, last year, he came out and pitched great. So maybe all of this is silly. Um, I don't know. Granky sort of seemed to alternate today when we were talking with him between, you know, kind of being, you know, really vulnerable and human and sort of admitting to his own insecurities about how every year he wonders whether it's going to come back and then sort of being a little bit defiant about, you know, hey, look, my velocity is down every year and it's not a big deal. So I think, you know, really deep down, I think he wonders what it's going to be like and whether it's going to get to where it needs to get to. But, you know, I mean, he also was talking about how, look, every year I, I wonder the same stuff and every year it gets there. So I, I don't know where that leaves us, whether it's a story, whether it's not a story. I, it's just jarring, though, when, you, when you're sitting there and you're looking up at the radar gun. And, you know, I have memories of not that long ago, Zach Granke being able to dial it up to like 94, 95, you know, maybe only a couple of times a game. And that just doesn't seem like it's anywhere close to an option right now. Yeah, it's just so rare to hear a player not come up with an excuse basically or say I'm not worried about it even if they are worried about it which sometimes they must be but they'll always say you know I've had this before and it'll come back and it's March and I guess you can always count on Zach Greinke to say something that the typical player will not say so yeah well the the other thing that was interesting is just that there's always a sort of disconnect between what, and I, I just find this always very interesting, what a pitcher thinks he's throwing and what he's actually throwing. Mm. So we talked to Granky like just a little bit after his outing was over, and apparently he hadn't. I don't. I don't know if how this works. If he, you know, always gets a report on his velocities, if he asks for it, if, you know, he was pitching on a backfield that does have TrackMan on it, so I know he has access to it if he wants it. But he was sort of guessing that he was 86 to 91 which I, I thought was just fascinating because, I mean, there were times when the scout I was sitting next to today uh, was like 82 changeup, and I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, I, I guess you're right. <laughs> I don't know if that was a changeup. Like, it was, it was just noticeably not there today. So I don't know. That's always interesting. Like, you know, what a pitcher – is he guessing based on the, the reaction of hitters? Is he just – can he just feel it and it just feels like it's 90? But really, in reality, it's not. I don't know. That was weird. So last season, the Cleveland Indians wound up having one of, if not the greatest pitching staffs in uh, the history of baseball. But at least if you look at starting rotations stored by wins above replacement, the Diamondbacks were the leaders in the National League. That was the uh, cranky, godly Ray Corbin Walker situation that they had going last season. And uh, one of the things, of course, all of those pitchers pitched well. But one of the things that really aided the Diamondbacks is that they only needed to give, just adding this up on the fly, it looks like 17 starts to pitchers who are not in that top five. And now I know that I think the Diamondbacks wanted Shelby Miller to have been a part of that top five. But in any case, you look at the Diamondbacks right now and their best starting pitchers have returned. Shelby Miller is going to be due back somewhere in the middle of the summer. But, you know, the team is, it doesn't really have the rotation depth that you would expect a team in their position to have. 
Uh, they had traded Anthony Banda to the Rays in the Steven Souza deal. So what is the depth situation in the rotation for the Diamondbacks? Because every team should expect to need more than the five starters they begin with. Yeah. And I mean, I guess like I'll take this chance too to just talk about how really, really good and underrated good that rotation was last year and the pitching staff really as a whole. I, I think it was the seventh best ERA plus of any pitching staff since like 1947 or something like that, which is just kind of crazy that they managed to pull that off last year, despite, I don't know, just at least in the bullpen, it didn't ever totally feel, you know, they had Fernando Rodney in the ninth, they had a, kind of a rotating cast of characters ahead of Archie Bradley, but it just didn't, didn't ever really feel like they had things totally settled down there. And yet they managed to to pull off, you know, really the best overall pitching season in franchise history. But yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen exactly in, in terms of rotation depth. It's it's a concern until Shelby comes back in, you know, June or July, whenever that will be. You know, they're the guys that are most likely right now to fill those depth roles. It's probably Braden Shipley and Matt Cook, who are both on the 40-man roster. Um, Taylor Clark, a, a pitching prospect of theirs is right there as well. Um, they signed some guys to minor league deals like Chris Medlin and Jake Buchanan. I'm probably forgetting somebody else at the moment, but it's, it's not, uh, the most established cast of characters or, you know, I mean, certainly Chris Medlin has had his years, but has not looked very good recently. And it's something that Mike Hazen has said that he's looking into, you know, bolstering here in the, in the weeks leading up to opening day. We'll see if he can actually get something done. It just seems like they've gone from a club that maybe wouldn't have been super attractive if you were a free agent starting pitcher looking to sign a minor league deal. Then maybe after that Bonda trade happened, I would I would feel like this is a place where, you know, if I were Scott Feldman and open to a minor league contract, that that, you know, the Dimex could make some sense as a place like, hey, look, maybe I maybe I will get a chance at some point in April and May if if one thing goes wrong. So we'll see. The Diamondbacks do not have J.D. Martinez now, but as he recently wrote, they do have one of the guys who helped make J.D. Martinez, J.D. Martinez. They hired one of his hitting coaches who helped turn him into what he is today. I'm sure he came a lot cheaper than the actual J.D. Martinez, and if he can make more J.D. Martinez's, that could be quite (laughs) cost-efficient. But this is fascinating to me because there is this whole kind of outside-the-organization culture of hitting coaches who maybe have had different philosophies from people who are affiliated with teams. And so now one of them is being brought into the fold here. So what can you tell us about him and his role and what kind of contribution he could make? Yes. Well, his name is Robert Van Skoik, and uh, he is going to be their hitting strategist. And I think that it's going to be somewhat similar to the stuff that Dan Heron did last season as the pitching strategist. Mm-hmm. And Dan Heron certainly deserves a lot of credit for you know what we were talking about just a minute ago and the, the turnaround of, of the pitching staff last year. And I think that they're hoping that Van Skoik can can uh, you know make a similar impact by putting together these kind of individualized plans of attack for every hitter against the opposing starter for that night. I think he's also going to be you know involved to in to some degree in um, like making or suggesting swing change you know other mechanical type of things. Um, but I think that that's all going to be kind of streamlined through Dave Magadan, the primary hitting coach, and and Tim Laker, the assistant hitting coach. Um, I, I I mean, and and Robert is also going to be bouncing around to the minor league affiliates. He's going to be involved in 
looking at the amateur draft, he's going to be involved in other like, you know, trade or other acquisition avenue type of things. So he's going to have his hand in everything. Uh, but it does seem like kind of the place where he can make the biggest immediate impact is in that kind of day-to-day scouting report. And I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out. I mean, that was something that I think maybe didn't get quite as much attention in the past. Like not only did he help rebuild JD Martinez's swing, but he was kind of there every step of the way with JD. And I think devising game plans for JD of like, Hey, this, this pitcher is vulnerable in this spot, or this is the plan that I would take to the plate. If I were you, this is your strength. This is his weakness. This is where it's going to collide every now and then. And here's where you can take advantage of it. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out. A lot of the guys in the, in the clubhouse are curious and excited. Um, they think he can make a difference. He's uh, he's won over a lot of guys. Um, you know, several players went to work with him individually in the off season. Pollock, Ahmed, uh, Drury before he got traded, um, he he was over there. Um, so he's you know he's got the, he's got buy in from a lot of guys, and um, and these are this is a pretty open minded group of of Diamondbacks hitters. Mm. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out. How does that how does that sort of blend in? You mentioned there's Dave Agaton, there's the assistant hitting coach. So how how does the coaching staff fit in another guy such that they don't end up butting heads? It's I mean, there are a lot of players in an organization, and as you mentioned, Van Skoik is going to be going down to the minors, but I guess the spring training is still so early, but how have you seen all the coaches, I guess, getting along and and deferring to one another? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like they're all on board. You know, I, I talked to uh, their minor league hitting coordinator a little bit. He spoke highly of Robert. Um, I spoke to Dave Magan for a long time. You know, he he likes him. He's he's impressed. He likes a lot of the drills that Robert uses to work with hitters. Uh, he thinks that they're useful to kind of get guys in the right positions and get them, you know, kind of maybe communicate the right things about the swing. You know, and I think it maybe helps a little bit, too, that uh, Tim Laker is friends with uh, Craig Wallenbrock and Robert uh, from from you know several years back. They they all kind of work out together and and hit together in a in a cage in Santa Clarita. So Robert and Tim have have a you know longstanding relationship that I think will help. But no, you're right. I mean, I I think it's also it does have the potential to get a little bit sticky. You know, I mean, if if he's making a, a suggestion that you know maybe Magadan doesn't like, you know, or or if maybe a player uh, starts to gain more trust in Robert than he does in the other hitting coaches. That just has the potential to be really awkward. You know, one thing that the players are saying though, is that they're all on the same page right now. They're all speaking the same language. It, it, it seems like everything's is going fine right now, but it's, you know, it's March. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Hmm. So I may very well have asked you a version of this question on last year's preview, but you've been covering the Diamondbacks for a while, and I don't know whether any organization has changed and evolved more rapidly philosophically than the Diamondbacks have going from Dave Stewart to the current regime and even from the late Kevin Towers regime, which sounds sad and strange to say, but those teams were very different just the way they spoke to you and the media and made public statements and seemed to evaluate players. And I mean, is there any continuity in the organization from those days at any level? Did they completely clean house? Is there any kind of DNA of 
the organization that you covered for years there, or has this just been a complete sort of invasion of the sabermetric pod people, and now the Diamondbacks <laughs> just sound and act and think exactly like every other team does these days? <laughs> there are still some holdovers. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people on the minor league coaching staffs. Um, the farm director, Mike Bell, is the same. They have some other guys in the front office that have been around for a long time, but more and more it does it does just feel you know like like other organizations. I mean, before it was it was pretty possible for me to know most of the guys in baseball operations. Mm. Earlier today, I saw a group of about twelve people sitting down and eating lunch together, and it's a bunch of you know guys in their twenties that are that are new and assistants mm. uh, that that, uh, that I've that I have never met. I have no idea who a lot of these guys are. <laughs> it's classified. Um, so it's it's growing very fast. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's the, the way that they interact with me. It's it's probably you know the same. I think you did ask me something about this last year, and yeah. I'll, I'll you know say probably a similar thing. It's just it's just a it, it's just a totally different way of of hearing players talked about. You know, I mean, it obviously they they still value scouting and they they look at that stuff very closely, but you know, you just hear references to different types of data that were used in in uh, the decision making that you didn't hear before. And I think that the, I think that the manager is, is more open to that sort of stuff. I think that it's, you know, I mean, I, I think that something like uh, why Jeff Mathis started the wild card game last year with Granky on the mound. I mean, they were very big believers in Mathis's ability to receive Granky's pitches and the value that that brings compared to Ionetta. And, it you know it's the sort of stuff that you know there was there was some very specific data that they were using to to justify that and it was the sort of thing that you certainly wouldn't have have come across I don't think with uh, previous regimes. One of the uh, there's a change that the Diamondbacks are implementing this season. They're going to be storing their baseballs in a humidor. Now this could eventually maybe as soon as next season end up being a something that they do league wide. But this is something that the Diamondbacks have talked about for, for some time, and I think it popped up before 2017. Now it's actually going to happen. They will store the baseballs in conditions identical to how the balls are stored in Colorado, which, of course, installed the humidor something like a decade and a half ago. Chase Field is a hitter-friendly park, and it's uh, it's friendly for home runs, but it's nowhere close to what Coors Field was pre-humidor. And in Colorado, the humidor had a, a pretty stark difference. And while Arizona does not play at Colorado's elevation, it's actually a drier climate than Denver is. So there is the conversation among, you know, the baseball scientists, and I don't know why I said plural, there's really only one of them, but... There's the conversation that uh, that the humidor effect could be even greater in Arizona. So have players really talked about this much? Have have people with a team talked to you about this much? Or what, what have you heard about what the expected effects are going to be of this? Because it feels like this could actually turn Arizona into a park that plays more pitcher friendly. Yeah. You know, a lot of the players seem to be kind of downplaying it. You know, the pitchers are just saying, oh, you still got to make your pitches. And the hitters are just saying, what what good is it? You know, obviously, I don't want a humidor, but what good does it do to talk about it? But and the and the the organization hasn't really given us very many hints in terms of what they expect. But yeah, it's hard to it's hard to imagine it not making a big difference one way or the other. I still though think that Chase Field has a lot of like qualities that are going to lend itself to being a good place to hit. It still has that big batter's eye in center field. The grass has always been very dry and very fast. There's always been these those corners uh, b- down both lines that seem to kind of 
suck up baseballs and just kind of turn, you know, maybe in some ballparks, uh, it'll, you know, a ball will kick out to the right fielder and, and he'll have a chance at getting him at second or holding him to a single. But here it feels like it's, it's an automatic double and often just produces extra triples. So I think that there are just going to be a lot of things that still that will make it relatively hitter friendly, but I don't know. I mean, you, you do wonder when you see those, you know, those estimates of, of how much, you know, exit velocity will decrease, you know, and, and how that's going to apply across the board to a lot of these guys, you know, especially when you look at, you know, some pretty stark home road splits, not only as a team, but, you know, for some of the, of the team's uh, more high profile hitters, it does seem uh, like it has the potential to be pretty, pretty impactful. Do we know why they wanted to have a humidor so much? I mean, we discussed on the podcast and have read things about pitchers having problems with grips potentially, but is this a situation where they think they're going to get some kind of competitive advantage out of this, or is it just a a better brand of baseball, or is there some other kind of consideration? Yeah, again, I mean, they haven't really been very forthcoming on that. You know, they've, they've kind of said like, you know, this is the way that major league baseball wants us to do it. So this is what we're doing. Like major league baseball wants consistency in ball storage. And, and I don't, you know, I don't think that that's totally the full story. I I would imagine they're, you know, they're just tired of, of having so much trouble developing pitching and just kind of wanted to, you know, get kind of on the same, you know, close to the same ground as the rest of the league in that regard. You know, they, they did talk about it many years ago. I think, I think right before Kevin Towers was hired, they were talking about it. And part of the thinking then was, you know, look, we've got all these guys coming up and I think at the time it was like, Bauer and Skaggs and Corbin and Jared Parker and you know those guys that whole group of pitching coming up that they wanted to to kind of create a little bit more of a of a friendly atmosphere for them and you know they were talking about it last year this time and they were coming off a dreadful pitching season so I don't know if it's if it's you know you look at <laughs> like how good they were last year I don't I don't think that that really changed their plans necessarily, but it certainly seems like you could you could make the argument for it not being the best time to do it since the staff has really come into its own and maybe compared to some other guys that are coming into town, you know, maybe they have more of an advantage now than they will subsequently. It's pretty easy to talk about every team's bullpen being something of a question mark. I think it's true for everyone that isn't the Yankees this season, but the Diamondbacks went into last season. They were not expected to have a very good bullpen. It turned out to be pretty strong in large part because of Archie Bradley. He's still out there. They added Brad Boxberger, but the guy who, I don't know if you want to call him an X factor, but the guy I'm most interested in, and maybe a lot of people are most interested in, is Yoshihisa Hirano who the Diamondbacks picked up from Japan. He was a closer with Oryx. He saved 156 games in Japan. I know he's uh, he's in his mid-30s, and his last couple years over there in uh, in the Pacific League, his numbers started to get a little worse. He started to miss fewer and fewer bats, but he's over now. He's made three or four appearances in Arizona, and what have you seen from him? Does he just seem to have that classic low 90s fastball and like lethal splitter combination that so many of these relievers seem to have, or how does he look? Yeah, he, he does have that, that exact repertoire and he hasn't looked great. Um, there's been a lot of hard hit balls off of him so far, but you know, look, it's a, it's a Japanese pitcher coming over, getting used to new baseballs and he's, you know, in his, what, almost his mid thirties and he's probably just working his way into shape. So I'm, you know, more than willing to give him some time to, to see if it can get a little bit better. But, you know, you can sort of see there There have been a couple of guys that have taken some bad swings on his split. 
I'm curious to see if, uh, if the fastball velocity ticks up a little bit more and creates a little bit more of a separation. And, uh, you know, and it, it's, you know, like we said, I mean, it's that, it's that classic, uh, Japanese reliever, you know, repertoire that has been so successful for so many guys and for so many guys, you know, not just in their, you know, early thirties, but into their late thirties, uh, that have had a lot of success over here in the major leagues. And Hirano is kind of hoping he can follow in those footsteps. I just seriously considered preempting Jeff's inevitable Cattell Marte question, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going <laughs> to intrude on his territory. So I will, so Cattell Marte. <laughs> I will ask this question. AJ Pollock and David Peralta combined for 10.2 war, according to Fangraphs in 2015, They then plummeted all the way to 0.6 in 2016. They both missed most of the season. And then last year, they kind of had the dead cat bounce or the regression. They bounced back somewhat to a combined 3.9 war. They're both 30 years old. Is there more in there? Is there any hope that they're going to be closer to 2015 than 2017? Yeah, I mean, I was looking at Peralta the other day, and I mean, my my kind of first assumption, like just off of the memory of last year, was that his power was way down, and really, it, it was it was just for whatever reason a decline in his crazy number of triples that he had um, in the past. So I I think I you know I think he's probably settled in and and kind of shown that he's probably something close to you know to what he was last year, and it's a pretty good player. It's it's a it's a good left-handed bat that can hit righties really well. And Pollock, you know, Pollock had, I want to say it was in August. It was probably the worst month of his career. And he also missed about six or eight weeks with a, with a groin injury. Um, you know, injuries have been an issue for him, but he still produced, I, I want to say, you know, if you, if you do his war per, you know, 650 plate appearances, it was still pretty close to elite levels last year. So I, I, I just think with him, it's, it's the same as always. It's just staying on the field and staying healthy for 150 plus games. And, and he can be a really good player. I'm curious to see if, you know, knowing that he's going into free agency is going to play any part in him. You know, a lot of guys let that get to them. A lot of guys overthink that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I'd like to see if, uh, you know, just, just how AJ responds to that sort of thing. But I, you know, I, I think that for him, you know, I'll say it again, it's just he, he, when he misses time, I I think that he gets a little bit out of sync with his swing. And I think he needs to kind of be always out there, always making adjustments. And so just staying healthy is going to be the most important thing there. Look, I could have asked you a Yasmani Tomas question here. I could have asked you a question about Chris Owings. I could have asked you a question about Gerard Dyson. There's a lot of questions I want to ask, but now I have to ask you about Cattell Marte and how good he is. We actually talked a little bit at the winter meetings, I remember, because the Diamondbacks, you know, they came into the offseason with about 11 different starting or utility caliber infielders, and teams are talking to them about trades. The Diamondbacks were engaging in those trade talks. But what I remember you telling me was that Marte was like the one who was untouchable, considered by Arizona to be untouchable back then. Uh, since then, uh, you have speculated that Marte is actually going to open the season as a second baseman with Nick Ahmed playing it short. But starting job is a starting job. And last season, at least compared to the season before Marte, he was just night and day. While he wasn't outstanding last year, he took a huge step forward. He literally tripled his walk rate. He trimmed his, his strikeout rate and made that better. Hit for more power. He's super fast. He's still young. He's got pretty good plate discipline. How high are the expectations for Marte this season? And uh, 
Do you think that there is the risk here of, of overhype, or do you think that he's actually ready to develop into an above-average everyday player? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience with him prior to last year, so, I mean, I don't want to build him up too much, but he, he looked great. And I think that if it weren't for, you know, maybe a kind of subpar final few weeks of the season, you would have finished with an OPS around 800, which would have, you know, made us even more excited for for this season. He says that it was just all about, you know, kind of maturing and just all about, you know, learning himself, learning how to go through struggles, you know, not to panic when you are struggling, not to get too aggressive at the plate and try to hit your way out of slumps, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the Diamondbacks are excited. It's a, it's a, it's an athletic player. He, he's, you know, got some power. He can run. He's a really, well, I was going to say he's, he's a great defender. He's capable of making great plays. He can be a little inconsistent still, but he was far more dependable defensively than, than I had expected uh, from everything that I had heard about his time in Seattle. And yeah, I mean, I, I would expect him to shift over to second and be just a, a tremendous defender at that position. I, I do think he's going to play a lot at short still. Ahmed is very good against lefties. Uh, maybe there are some times when there's a tough right-hander on the mound and maybe they want Marte at short and Daniel Descalso, left-handed hitter, at second. Or maybe there's times when they don't want Ahmed or Jeff Mathis in the lineup at the same time. So it it is kind of a versatile infield in that regard. And there's still Chris Owings, who you mentioned, um, who can who can slide in there, maybe slide in at third against lefties if they don't want Lamb in the lineup. So it's it's a pretty interesting group of infielders there that they can kind of mix and match and and uh, and you know try to try to find the best combinations. And yeah, I mean, Marte was Marte was fun to watch last year, man. It was only a couple of months of, of play, and not to mention what he went through with his with his mom dying um, right there in the middle of the season, and it you know it didn't seem to it didn't seem to hold him down. I mean, I can't imagine having to go through that, and he he came back and, and continued to play well. Are you more comfortable with WRC plus or OPS plus? They're, you know, similar scales, but which one do you prefer? Probably OPS plus. Okay, well, unfortunately, the what I'm looking at here is WRC plus, so we're just going to do that anyway. <laughs> so Nick Ahmed, his career, 58. Jeff Mathis, his career mark is 50. Jake Lamb, his career mark is 104. What do you think ends up higher this year? Jake Lamb's WRC plus or the combination of the other two? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> I did mention that uh, that Ahmed went to work with uh, Robert Van Squick in California. Um, and the thing about Ahmed too, that's like, like you you sit there and you talk to him about hitting, and I, I'm fairly convinced this guy can be a hitting coach and probably will end up being a hitting coach. He just is so in tune with everything that's going on and everything that you need to do to be successful. He just can't seem to put it together long enough. He did he did have a better year last year, didn't he? His his numbers were a little bit better than yeah. than in previous years. Yes. So, I mean, I'm hopeful uh, that 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 improvement was for real. He did lose his last three months of the season to a series of hand injuries, a really unfortunate sequence of events there where he broke his hand in late June, was just on the verge of coming back and playing in his final rehab game for Reno when he got hit on the same hand and broke another bone and was out for the rest of the year. So, um, you know, we'll see. I, I, uh, I, I don't think that I'm quite as optimistic on on Jeff Mathis. I, I think probably he is what he is. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think uh, I and I I don't know. Lamb Lamb is interesting too, though. There's there's a lot of room for growth there against left-handed pitching. If he can just be just you know not hit 150 against them, you know, just be halfway decent against lefties, that's an extremely valuable hitter. 
just hold his own against them, um, which he just hasn't really been able to do. I, I think it also starts with with the organization being more willing to get him in the lineup a little more consistently against them if they if they truly believe there's a chance to to improve. I mean, look, Lamb didn't play in Game One of the Division Series because Kershaw was on the mound because he had never started against Kershaw once in his career, which is crazy. So they need to be a little bit more willing to get him at bats against lefties if if they really believe that there's there's upside there for him. If this Von Squake character really wants to earn his keep, he has to take on <laughs> Jeff Mathis. That's what I want to see. I want to see the Jeff Mathis swing change airball revolution. Please. That's Jeff Mathis. He's he's great. Like I, I it's amazing that he has had the career that he's had and obviously teams are all convinced that he is contributing something despite the fact that Fangraphs war for instance would say that he's been below replacement level for his career but he is literally like a top 10 worst hitter of all time which is you know impressive that he's had as long a career as he has i mean minimum 2000 plate appearances he is the eighth worst hitter of of all time or at least of the modern era and He's 34, so if he has a decline phase ahead of him, he has like a legitimate chance of being maybe the worst non-Bill Bergen hitter ever. I mean, we are privileged to witness the the career of Jeff Mathis. I wonder if um, I wonder if Mathis's career was prolonged by the advent of framing numbers. Like, do you think he would have washed out by now yeah, if we so. weren't able to say for you know for sure that this is valuable? I would think so. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because he's not like a off-the-charts framer, according to the stats. It seems like game calling is maybe his, well, no pun intended, calling card. But R.J. <laughs> Anderson wrote a, a whole feature about that recently, about how much praise his game calling gets. And R.J. tried to get Mathis to, you know, divulge some of his secrets, and he wouldn't do it because he says it's a competitive advantage, which is true. It's, I mean, it's the only thing keeping him in the majors, and he's had a long and, in some sense, productive career because of it. So I hope he plays forever. <laughs> so my actual question we are almost at the end here, but the Diamondbacks last year, according to Baseball Prospectus's organizational rankings, were 28th. This year, they climbed all the way up to 27th, so <laughs> still not really a well-respected farm system, at least from outsiders. So is this a team that we should think about as having a very definite window? Like, should we be thinking of them the way that we thought of the Tigers a few years ago or that we think of maybe the Mariners now, a team like that where there's a window and you can see the window closing and there just isn't a lot of help on the way? Or is that not fair in their case? Well, I think it's interesting because it's not quite like the Tigers where there were you know, there's a slew of bad contracts and, you know, they're kind of all in and just hoping that it all works out for these guys in their, in their, you know, early to mid thirties. This is a roster with a bunch of guys in their prime, but I, I do think that they are geared up for these next two years with, with Paul Goldschmidt under contract, knowing that, that it might not last much longer. You know, Pollock is a free agent after this year. Patrick Corbin's a free agent after this year. I think they have two more years of Shelby Miller, three of Robbie Ray. So, you know, these, these guys are, are all getting to their, you know, more expensive arbitration years and are approaching free agency. So they're going to have a lot of interesting decisions to make on who to extend. And I think another thing that's, that's sort of interesting to me is that, 
their payroll has has gone a lot higher than most of us thought it was going to be at the beginning of the offseason. It's somewhere in the 125 to 130 range. And I think we sort of figured it was going to be around 110 or so, maybe a little bit north of that. And that kind of growth, I don't know if it's like strictly the, you know, the Disney money coming in or or if it's if it's the television deal finally sort of kicking in or if there's other things going on. But that sort of growth does make you wonder, you know, is is the idea of of a Goldschmidt extension maybe or or even re-signing Pollock or or some of the others? Uh, is it more feasible than than maybe we thought uh, before the number was that large? And I guess that also raises the question of just because it's more feasible, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that this front office would want to do to you know enter into a, a another huge contract with a with another player in his thirties like they currently have with Granke, who's signed for four more years. So I don't think that this form, the farm system is great, but there are some guys that are kind of interesting and you don't have to maybe use your imagination as much to come up with some interesting prospects right now. Uh, but there, there, there is not a, uh, like that bridge to that group, this, the, the most interesting group of prospects it's it's still several years away, you know. There's there's not a lot of help right now on the horizon, and I think that's probably true in some other areas on the roster as well. So, it, beyond starting pitching being thin, I mean, so they really need this group to stay healthy and play well. And you know, I think that if they do, they can be really good. Which I guess segues into the last question. <laughs> yes, we've somehow managed to avoid talking about most of the moves that the Diamondbacks actually made this winter, but uh, right. Stevenson. <laughs> Sousa, Alex Avila, Gerard Dyson. There we go. Covered all our bases. So yeah, <laughs> give us a 2018 win total. Yeah, I'm, I think that probably a lot of things went really well for them last year when they won 93 games. And I think that the National League is probably a little bit better on paper than it was last year. So I, I think they'll, I'll go with like 89, even though I don't think they're like that much worse of a team necessarily than last year. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always nice to have a, a repeat guest back on so that I don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot with the win total prediction because you come in prepared. <laughs> All right. Well, you can find Nick writing about the Diamondbacks at AZ Central Sports, azcentral.com, and also, of course, on Twitter at Nick Picoro. Thank you, as always. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. One quick addendum, right after we got off the line with Nick, he messaged me to say, right after I tell you guys that Hirano hasn't looked good, he apparently had a great outing today while I wasn't there. And Nick also says a scout told him that Hirano looked nasty against the Brewers. So I told him I'd mention that. Okay, we'll take a quick break now, and we'll be back with Kyle Lohmaner to talk about the Brewers. It is time for us to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers, and to do so, we are joined by Kyle Loebner. He has written for Brew Crew Ball. He can be found on Twitter at Brew Frosty Mug. He also writes for TimberRattlers.com, but I have known Kyle through the internet for a long time. He uh, was writing for Brew Crew Ball back when in the Lookout Landing days, and uh, this is a rare opportunity to talk to Kyle about a team that seems kind of interesting and exciting and potentially competitive. It's been a while, if uh, you don't want to count last season, so... Kyle, uh, hello. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? 
I'm doing very well. And I would uh, love to know how you feel about this offseason. The Brewers have pushed. They have worked aggressively, of course, trading for Christian Yelich and signing Lorenzo Cain. And they've been connected to God knows how many starting pitchers. In a sense, their offseason feels a little incomplete just because I think the expectation was there that they would add a pitcher. But as a fan, as an observer, a longtime observer, how do you feel about the Brewers acting so aggressive? Do you feel like this is the right time to graduate, I guess, from the short rebuild that they actually had? Yeah, I don't think this was the plan for the Brewers coming into the winter. And they've made comments, you know, kind of pointing to that as well, that this was a rebuild that was focused on peaking around 2020. And I think they may have arrived at the realization that somehow about 27 other front offices did not arrive at this winter, that with no one buying this winter, maybe it was a good time to move the window forward a little bit. Um, And so Lorenzo Cain comes back to Milwaukee. He came up as a brewer originally. Um, Christian Yelich comes to Milwaukee. Hulis Chassin is a brewer now. Wade Miley is somehow having a spring training that suggests that he's going to be a relevant brewer now. And so, yeah, this is a a team that um, I think has surprised people two years in a row. Um, The rebuild has been ahead of schedule for quite some time now. And all of a sudden, this is a team that maybe looks like they are poised to make a run. So this is sort of a broad question, and maybe there are many answers to it, but to what do you attribute the fact that the Brewers have not been bad? They were supposed to be bad. That was the plan. We all thought that was the plan. That is what we've seen. All the other teams that did the teardown and rebuild, they've all gone through that before they got better, and the Brewers seemingly went through that extremely quickly. So how did they do that? Yeah, I think they've done really well with reclamation projects that have put them in a position, I think, to be successful ahead of what anybody really expected. Um, it goes all the way back. Uh, David Stern's first acquisition as general manager was Junior Guerra, um, who went on to have such a good season in 2016 that he was the 2017 opening day starter, um, despite having been really an afterthought for a long minor league career before that. Um, Travis Shaw was kind of a throw-in in the Tyler Thornburg trade. Um, Manny Pena came to camp, you know, a year ago as kind of the third option to be a, a big league catcher, um, maybe a guy vying for a backup role. He ends up being a guy who is, you know, probably now the everyday catcher for this team for the foreseeable future. And so, you know, and Jonathan VR is another guy acquired in a, a really inexpensive trade. These are all guys that I think, you know, came to Milwaukee and exceeded anybody's expectations, probably including the Brewers front office. And because of that, this is a a Brewer team that has been talented enough, you know, kind of across the board to exceed expectations routinely for quite a while. Now, it's a big jump to go from being a team that exceeded expectations to a team that meets much higher expectations. But with that said, there's, you know, recent performance for a lot of these guys to indicate that this is a team with very limited holes and a, a very real opportunity for some guys to continue to improve. The greatest concern that I have, I'm, I'm all about the Brewers bandwagon. I think it's, it's time. They're fun. I don't know how many more years they have to be bandwagonable, but this is a, this is a good one. But the greatest concern I have for the team right now is that they're easily their best starting pitcher is Jimmy Nelson. He broke out, had his emergence last season, and then he severely injured his shoulder, which required a significant operation. And Right now, you know, he's he's getting back to throwing. He's got a timetable. He's supposed to come back, I don't know, two months into the season. But what is, I guess, the level of confidence around Jimmy Nelson's ability to get back to where he was? Because, of course, if Nelson is the ace that he looked like for five months last season, that is outstanding. And the Brewers have their game one starter in a playoff series. But without it, 
I don't know who's next, Chase Anderson, or like you said, Wade Miley's having a heck of a spring training, but that's not really where you want to lean. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting conversations that happened all winter happened at Brewers on Deck um, back in January, uh, because the Brewers coaching staff was asked on a panel discussion when they thought we would see Jimmy Nelson again, and they said June. Um, And Jimmy Nelson was asked about that and had zero interest in putting a timetable on it, which is kind of the opposite of what you usually get. And so certainly all signs point to Nelson being ahead of schedule in his rehab. He's a guy who has, you know, kind of a a famous work ethic. He is, you know, certainly if there is a guy who would put the extra work in to get back early, um, it would be Nelson. But we're also talking about a a pretty serious surgery and shoulder trouble, you know, not a thing you just bounce back from immediately. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the season. Um, Certainly it would allay some of the doubts about this team if Nelson is capable of pitching again in June. Um, But with that said, uh, this is a a Brewer team that also feels like they got um, much more than they expected from Chase Anderson a year ago. If you believe what the Brewers have said publicly, the only reason Chase Anderson made the roster a year ago is because Matt Garza got injured. And he went out and had a really great season. Um, Zach Davies had a really great breakout season in 2017. And the Brewers are really quick to credit the work that some of these guys have done with Derek Johnson and that they feel like some of these breakouts are relatively permanent. Um, And that these guys haven't just had a career year. They've taken the next step towards being great pitchers. And if the Brewers are going to contend, they kind of need to be. Uh, Because with Nelson coming back from a surgery as severe as what we're talking about, it almost needs to be treated as a bonus if the Brewers get anything from him this year. Uh, It shouldn't be, you know, they're just trying to weather the storm until he comes back. Because even once he gets back, um, it seems unlikely that he's going to be, you know, pitching deep into games right away or at least all the way back to being his old self immediately. This is a Brewer team that really needs good things to come from the other guys in their rotation, the Davies and the Andersons and the Chassines, and whoever wins the the battle for the last couple spots. There were rumors, of course, most of the winter linking the Brewers to some of the top free agent starters, some of them still available. So is there any sense of disappointment that they didn't end up getting one of those guys or is there confidence in the starters that they have or a feeling that they would have ended up making some kind of commitment that they might have regretted in the long run yeah i think brewer fans have now seen an awful lot of kind of middle market free agent starting pitching contracts go relatively poorly going all the way back to jeff supon um, randy wolf kyle loesch was another one they just got out from underneath the matt garza contract And so as they talked to a lot of these guys over the course of the winter, I think among the fan base there was a pretty heavy feeling of, oh, no, here we go again. You know, looking at some of these guys and a contract that might be um, listed as part of the reason the Brewers couldn't spend money three years from now. Uh, But with that said, I am surprised that we got all the way through, or at least most of the way through the winter, because as you mentioned, the free agent market is still thoroughly open. We got most of the way through the winter without this becoming a thing um, and without – um, Scott Boris working his phone magic and calling Mark Adonazio and finding a contract for Jake Arrieta out of it the way he has with some of his other clients in the past. So I think, you know, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that it still could happen, but the Brewers at the very least are publicly saying, this is the team we have. We're not out shopping. We think we're done, you know, trying to make big deals. And at present, I think you kind of have to take them at face value for that. And so it would be a little bit surprising to get all the way through this winter without adding a pitcher, especially given all the money they spent in the outfield. Um, But it looks like that's the path we're headed down. 
One of my favorite fun statistical facts of the advanced era, I guess, of baseball metrics is that when Ryan Braun debuted, he played about, I don't know, two-thirds of a season as a third baseman. His defensive run saved came out to negative 32, and his uh, his UZR came out to negative 29. So Ryan Braun, when he was a rookie, was arguably the worst defensive infielder that has existed to the side of Eduardo Nunez as a Yankee. And now Ryan Braun, of course, is not being tried at third base. That experiment is long since over, but he is getting reps at first base because we have, there is just an overcrowded outfield. So I know Keon Broxton has options, and I don't know, maybe you don't worry that much about the playing time of Jesus Aguilar, but how do the Brewers make this work if they don't make a trade? Because I know people have talked about them potentially trading Brett Phillips, Keon Broxton, even Domingo Santana over the past few weeks, but nothing has materialized. It's getting a little late. How does the playing time work out here? They're between the four positions, assuming Yelich and Kane are going to play every day. Yeah, there's a real challenge here. Because as you mentioned, Yelich and Kane are guys you're going to want to see in the lineup a lot. Ryan Braun is most comfortable in left field, certainly. He has looked okay at first base this spring. Certainly, I think he's been pretty close to as good as you could expect from a guy who had never played the position before at any level. He has done things like, you know, dive to save errors on pickoff throws. His footwork looks decent. And, you know, all the way back when Braun was a third baseman a decade ago, um, the issue was never really his fielding or his footwork. Braun had a really hard time making the throw from third to first base um, consistently or, you know, with any level of effectiveness. And so at first base, he obviously doesn't have that problem. And so, you know, there is a chance that this could work out that Braun could play first base, but it creates other questions then. Um, The Brewers are still relatively high on Eric Thames. They still have Jesus Aguilar in the organization, and if Braun is going to play some first base, keeping Jesus Aguilar seems a little bit redundant, and they may not have room on the roster for him. And in addition to that, there is a, a playing time crunch in the outfield. So the Brewers are going to have, if they don't make a move before opening day, they're going to have a really tough decision to make with some of these guys. They're probably going to have to consider letting a guy like Aguilar go just to make room and then try to find basically a, a fair amount of playing time for five players, including Eric Thames, in four spots day-to-day without the benefit of the DH. What would the emotion be if Braun is eventually traded? There were lots of jokes over the winter about the Giants acquiring him because they were acquiring the faces of other franchises who were sort of past their primes. So would Brewers fans be very sorry to see him go? He is, of course, the last link to the previous good Brewers teams, the 2011 playoff team. I know the opinion of Braun generally has diverged for a while between Brewers fans and every other type of fan probably. But at this point, are people sort of eager to see them free up the payroll space and the roster space, or is there still an attachment to him? Yeah, I think there is a portion of the Brewer fan base that if the Brewers just released Ryan Braun today um, would give a standing ovation to the front office. There is a portion of the fan base that has never got over everything that happened with Braun for about 2011 to 13. And it's their right to determine how they want to feel about that. Um, And there is also a portion of the fan base that I think is thoroughly behind Braun. You know, that this guy, you know, he's got flaws just like everybody, but for whatever reason, for Brewer fans, he's their guy. You know, and so they support him as long as he's here. He's one of the greatest hitters in Brewer franchise history. So, you know, if the Brewers were to make a move today to unload Ryan Braun, it would be a very complicated story to tell. 
because uh, a large portion of the fan base would be excited by it regardless of what the return is. And a large portion of it would probably also be pretty thoroughly disappointed. I mean, I think there is, you know, I know it's been talked about a lot this winter. Among the, the average fan, there is, I think, maybe a lack of understanding about how baseball economics work. You know, fans get upset about the amount of money Ryan Braun is making. Uh, the Brewers really don't need that money back. Mm-hmm. Braun made about a third of the entire team salary last year. He is, you know, standing to make about $20 million this year for a Brewer team that is still with a payroll under $100 million. So it's not a matter of the Brewers needing to find a way to move him for payroll relief. It would almost have to be for value. And in that case, plus the fact that Braun has the ability to reject a trade anywhere and has been you know, pretty public about the fact that he has very few places he's interested in going, it would be really difficult to put that trade together in a meaningful way. Corey Knebel is uh, very obviously the uh, the sensational pitcher in the bullpen. He came out and had, I don't know, a Craig Kimbrell kind of season last year and hit one of several Brewers breakouts that helped drive their run to competitiveness last season. So I think Knebel is being leaned on. He's the clear closer, but Josh Hader, especially in the final, I don't know, five or, or six weeks of the season when he came up, he, he came up around mid-season out of the minors, and he was thrust into a relief role, but he really started throwing strikes for about the last month and a half or so, and he was absolutely dominant from the left side. He's got one of the most unhittable fastballs in the game, and of course, Hayter has been talked about as a starter. He's been talked about as a reliever. He is not the first pitcher to end up with this sort of dilemma. He will not be the last pitcher to end up in this sort of dilemma, but what do the Brewers do with Josh Hayter? where you figured his ceiling is so high if he would be able to start, but are they just going to leave him out there to throw one, maybe two innings at a time in high leverage relief? It looks like it right now. You know, the the Brewers had an opportunity this winter, um, especially with the rotation being as uncertain as it is, to um, take Josh Hader and say, you know what, let's give this a shot. But the challenge with that would be, um, because of the way they used him last season, uh, because they had gone very light on his innings in April and May down in Colorado Springs, anticipation of a call-up, then they moved him to relief. He threw about, I think it was 85, 90 innings last season. Um, he's never thrown a lot more than that. Um, so if the Brewers were intending to try him as a starter, realistically, the best-case scenario is maybe you get four months out of that experiment before you're looking at an innings limit and a very hard innings limit to prevent him from potentially wrecking his career. And so, yeah, for them to to stick him in the bullpen last year was a gutsy move. It might have been the right move to make to try to contend as they were trying to contend a year ago. Um, But it probably did limit their options a little bit going forward because if they do want to try him as a starting pitcher now, it's going to be very difficult to try to find a way to make that transition. Now, in the meantime, he's a tremendously valuable bullpen arm, um, especially as a guy who throws left-handed. And the ability to pick and choose um, which inning he works in, I think will be a a really good thing for Craig Council. Um, Not binding him to the ninth inning in a closer role um, gives him the opportunity to come in at a time when matchups are really in his favor. And so, yeah, he has the opportunity to be a great reliever. It's hard not to wonder if the Brewers are missing an opportunity to do more with him, um, especially given the question marks around the rotation. In Baseball Prospectus's most recent organizational rankings, the Brewers dropped from third last year to 19th this year, which must be one of the biggest drops. And that's partly for good reasons. They graduated a lot of guys. But 
One of the byproducts of the fact that they've gotten good so quickly is that they're not going to have a sustained run of high draft picks the way that, say, the Astros and the Cubs did. So is there going to be sort of a second wave of prospects that can prop up this team or is what we've seen sort of it? Do they have to make whatever they're going to be after out of players who have already made it up to the majors for the most part? There is potentially another wave of pitching coming. Corbin Burns is a guy who has really climbed up the organizational ladder very quickly. He's a guy who somehow fell to the fourth round in the draft a few years ago, but has really pitched like a first-round talent um, and maybe a high first-round talent during his time in the minors. Um, He has had some really nice outings for the Brewers this spring. I think it's likely that he is going to make his big league debut sometime this season. There are a few other guys behind him that I think have an opportunity to be um, pretty decent big league pitchers. But, yeah, the, the combination of the lack of sustained high draft picks and the Yelich trade, which did send a couple of high upside guys in the organization away, set this organization back a little bit. And the Brewers were able to deal from a position of strength to a point. They dealt away a couple of outfielders. And it's somewhat understandable because if you look at the three guys who project to play most days in the outfield, uh, Christian Yelich, Lorenzo Cain, and Domingo Santana, you're talking about five years of club control um, pretty much across the board. So it would have been a while before an opportunity had come around for a guy like Lewis Brinson or Monte Harrison. But nonetheless, the Brewers, yeah, they they built up their organization through trades and through the, the brief rebuild, and they were able to gain a lot of ground via trades. But some of that is gone. Some of those guys, the Brewers are trying to win a little bit ahead of schedule. And so I think some of those guys are going to be a little bit behind um, the wave, as it turns out. But there's an opportunity for some of these guys to come up and crack the roster. The challenge is going to be, and the Brewers are dealing with this with Brandon Woodruff right now, you know, do you want to let a guy learn in the big leagues while you're trying to win? And so there never becomes a good time to really break one of those guys in. And this is the hole that Lewis Brinson fell into a little bit as well. If you feel like they might struggle for a month, but you need to win in that month, how, how do you build around that? How do you get these guys the opportunity? With a team like this, of course, so many rumors broke out last season, but one player who, I guess, sort of broke out, but didn't really emerge as a, a strong everyday player yet was uh, shortstop Orlando Garcia. He is a former top prospect and, you know, you look at him, he's got a lot of the tools. He makes pretty frequent contact. He's a good glove guy. But I think what is easy to miss is that even though Arcia is sitting on a career WRC plus of just 79 over more than a full season's worth of playing time, he's only coming off his age 22 season. He's uh, He doesn't turn 24 until the early part of August. So with the league sort of almost drowning in really, really talented shortstops. It seems like Arcia is an easy one to forget, but if the Brewers have a diminished farm system, then one thing you can look for is improvement from the cost-controlled players on the Major League roster. And so with that all being said, how much more do you see being possible for Orlando Arcia, and how much do you think would be reasonable for him to achieve now that he's going into his third big league year? I'm not sure Arcia is ever going to be an above-average big league hitter. Um, But I do think there's some room for growth. 
And all the way back when the Brewers called him up for the first time, they were pretty honest about the fact that they felt like his defense was big league ready, but his bat still had some learning to do. And towards the end of the 2017 season, we started to see his power come around a little bit. You know, we are still seeing a work in progress at the plate. We are still seeing a a guy who is learning what pitchers are trying to do to him, especially at the big league level, and developing the ability to respond to it. He batted ace a big chunk of the year in 2017, practically every day, and did reasonably well there, I think, given some of the challenges of that spot, despite, you know, pitchers not necessarily wanting to throw strikes or at least good strikes to a guy in that position. And so I think there is some room for growth um, offensively. And I think defensively, even if his bat does not improve, defensively, he is going to be good enough to be a viable big league starter for quite a while. Um, And as he, you know, continues to mature, I think even some of that may grow just a little bit. Um, Some of the plays that he can make um, are very much highlight reel worthy, and they just don't get the press they would have because it seems like plus defensive shortstops are, you know, something every organization has right now. Um, But the Brewers waited a long time to have that. They really struggled with that position defensively for a long time before Arcia came around. Um, so after a few years of watching, you know, Unesky Betancourt et al. Um, wander around in shortstop, um, getting to see RCF play out there every day is a real treat. So same question Jeff asked just now, but about Domingo Santana instead. Obviously, Santana is already a very good hitter and took a, a big step forward last year, but I've seen it suggested that there may be more in his body and his bat and he's going to be pushed now because all of a sudden he's probably the Brewers third best outfielder and they have a bunch of other options there so he has to hold his own he has to make progress does he have a lot more in him or is what we've seen which is already pretty good basically what he's going to be I think Domingo Santana has the opportunity to be almost exactly what he is now for about 10 more years Uh in the big leagues. I think we're not going to see, he already gets criticism for kind of a, a lackadaisical style in the field. He is a guy who looks relatively casual out there, and that is the person that he is. And I think to a point, he is a victim of confirmation bias. Um, If he really runs after a fly ball and then he kind of jogs after the next one, fans remember the latter. But with that said, I I don't know that you're going to see his defense improve very much, although his throwing arm is very good. Makes up for a point to his kind of slow running speed. It's really hard to believe that two years ago uh, when the Brewers acquired him, they thought he could play center field. Hmm. But yeah, as an offensive player, um, you're looking at a guy with a pretty advanced approach, a guy who will take a fair number of walks, Um, He does um, strike out a fair amount also, which is part of the side effect of working deep into counts unless you're Joey Votto, um, and there's only one of those. So, you know, I think offensively, you know, I've gone out on a limb and and said it a couple times, I think I've said it in the Facebook group even, um, of all the guys on this Brewer team right now, Domingo Santana maybe has an outside shot at having, you know, a 500 home run type of career. Being a guy who stays in the big leagues a long time, can hit steadily, um, and has a, a run that looks a lot like, you know, Carlos Lee or Nelson Cruz, um, someone kind of in that vein, where defensively he's not going to help you a lot, but offensively he's always going to be good enough to make it a good idea to play him at least sometimes. I was seeing in the news that uh, earlier Thursday Manny Pena hit two home runs in a spring training game, and he looks like he's currently the front runner to play most often behind the plate for the Brewers. The situation back there is Manny Pena, Stephen Vogt, Jet Bandy is hanging around, and Jacob Nottingham is in there somewhere, maybe the fourth guy on the depth chart. But 
Pena is a he's an atypical starting uh or at least semi-regular catcher. I don't know really what to call him. Roles are weird these days, but he just had his first kind of regular season in the majors last year when he was 30 years old and he held his own. He was outstanding defensively. He hit just about league average. There is power in there, but do you consider the Brewers situation behind the plate to be a weakness, something they could upgrade? I know people have connected them or at least tried to connect them to Jonathan Lucroy to, I don't know, try to rediscover some of that Lucroy Gallardo magic or something on the roster, but how comfortable are you right now with what the Brewers already have behind the plate? Because Manny Pena is a He's pretty much an unknown. In the short term, I think this team is probably okay uh, with Pena behind the plate. He is very good defensively in addition to everything you mentioned about his offensive game. But it is worth noting that he was already one of the oldest regular catchers in baseball a year ago in his rookie season. So this is not going to be the long-term solution for this team. This is probably not a guy who is going to be a big league regular um, still at 36 years old. Um, when he reaches free agency. And so, yeah, there's a a challenge here because despite all the catchers that you mentioned, there is not a clear candidate to be the catcher of the future. You know, the Brewers have a prospect named Mario Feliciano that I spent the the summer covering a year ago um, who was in low A, was catching for the first time as a professional last year, had a nice season, and he is probably the best internal candidate to be a long-term big league catcher. And so, you know, this is nothing new for Brewer fans. It has been a, before Jonathan Lucroy, it was a long time um, since the Brewers had had a reliable everyday catcher. B.J. Surhoff might have been the last one. And so, yeah, this is a a real challenge. And I think across baseball, there is something of a a scarcity at the catching position as teams, you know, continue to draft guys as catchers but move them off the position at the first sign of defensive struggle. Um, all of a sudden, there's not really a lot of elite catchers to go around, and there's not even a ton of passable catchers to go around. So the Brewers have done a nice job in the short term, giving themselves a lot of options. But no, I don't think, you know, beyond the next 18 months or so, they have an answer to that question. So we can wrap up with one question about the the two biggest, highest profile acquisitions of the offseason. I think we know that Christian Yelich and Lorenzo Cain are both great players. I think the most common question about Yelich is, can he be even better? And the most common question about Cain is, how much longer can he be this good? So what are your answers to each of those questions? I think Yelich has an opportunity to be a very good brewer without changing much. I think moving from... Miami to Milwaukee for his home games will expand his power numbers a little bit without him doing anything else. Now, with that said, yeah, it would be nice if he could, you know, kind of bend to the the swing change mentality that's going around right now, see if he could put the ball in the air a little more. But with that said, I think um, the Brewers have been a team that strikes out a lot for a long time. I think having a guy like Yelich with plus plate discipline um, improves that a little bit. In fact, the Brewers now have, I think, three of the National League's top 12 guys in walks from a year ago in Yelich, Thames, and Santana. Um, So they should be a team that will at least take up base on balls, even if they do strike out a little bit. So I think Yelich has the opportunity to be a a really great addition for this team. And, yeah, of the two, um, most of my questions about guys the Brewers acquired this winter center around Lorenzo Cain, because Cain is a very good player, has been for a while, has been since he was a Brewer. Um, But he is aging, and a a big amount of his value is tied to his ability to play a plus defensive center field. Um, So if two years from now he is 34 years old and his legs don't allow him to play center anymore, 
I'm not sure what the last three years of this contract are going to look like for the Brewers. But in the short term, you know, if the, the Brewers are serious about, you know, building for 2018 instead of 2020, um, very clearly Lorenzo Cain makes this team better in the short term. And, you know, when they get to the, that window at the end of the, the Cain deal, they'll have to figure out. Um, by that point, Ryan Braun's money will be off the books, and they'll have to figure out how they can work around it. All right, so take us home with the traditional prediction of a 2018 win total. I've been agonizing over this for 24 <laughs> hours now. I think the Brewers surprised everybody by getting to 86 wins a year ago. Um, with all the question marks they had on opening day, kind of everything went right to get to 86. I think this year the expectation is probably a little closer to that number, and I think it's probably pretty close to right. I think a lot would have to go well for this Brewer team to get to 90 wins. But I think the floor for this team is relatively high. There are a fair number of guys here that have had success before. There's a fair amount of depth here. Um, There is an opportunity to swap some guys out if guys struggle again. So I think I'll I'll take 86 wins. And I think that puts them kind of squarely in position to be, at the very least, the NL's second wild card. But if things go right, I think there's an opportunity for more. All right. Well, you can find Kyle Lindner in many places. You can find him writing at TimberRattlers.com. You can find him at Shepherd Express, Milwaukee's most respected alternative weekly. We would not have any guests on from less respected alternative weeklies. And you can find him on Twitter at BrewFrostyMug, where every morning you can find him doing a roundup of Brewers coverage. You can also support that effort, which takes a lot of time, I'm sure, on Patreon. He's on Patreon, too, at patreon.com slash frostymug. Kyle, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Quick PSA for everyone who is in a March Madness mood. I'm not someone who fills out brackets. Even attending Georgetown couldn't make me care about college basketball, but I know that is not the case for many of you. Some of you may be filling out brackets as you listen to me right now. If you are or if you will be in the coming days, you have an opportunity to do something charitable. While you're at it, I received an email from longtime Effectively Wild listener Sidney Kushner. He runs a nonprofit organization that helps kids who have cancer, and their big fundraiser is is a charitable March Madness competition. So people across the country make their brackets charitable by donating the pot instead of gambling it and thereby sponsor a local kid who's fighting cancer. If you'd like to participate, the charity is called Connecting Children with Champions and this initiative is called the March to Friendship. So just go to marchtofriendship.com and Sydney has made this especially easy. On that page, just click on Join Your Team, scroll down a bit, and you will see a link for Effectively Wild listeners. That's you. So you can click on that and it will take you to the right place to get everything set up. Seems pretty easy to do and it seems like a worthy cause. So again, go to marchtofriendship.com if you're filling out a bracket this week. And I will link to that on the show page at Fangraphs as well as in the Facebook group. You can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Thank you to everyone who has pledged recently and helped ensure the podcast's financial future. Five listeners who have recently signed up for small monthly pledges include Al, Brandon Castro, David, David Tate, and Al Wilkes. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. We'll probably pass 7,500 members this weekend. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. I'll insert my regular reminder to go to banishtothepen.com, our sister site started 
by Effectively Wild listeners. Where they have written previews up for every team that we are previewing on the podcast. I've linked to that in the show page and the Facebook group. So we hope you have a wonderful weekend. And we'll be back early next week with a Bay Area edition of our team preview podcast series. We'll be talking about the Giants and the A's. Talk to you then. Turn it 18.